and welcome to another Scots We Hey podcast. And today I'm joined by DJ, musician and writer George Patterson. And we're here to talk about the latter of those three. But first of all, hello, George. Hello, there, Alistair. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. And thanks for uh, taking the time to have a chat, because we're going to talk about your debut novel, The Girl, The Crow, The Writer and The Fighter, which for those on video, I have the copy here. And um, it's a fantastic book. It's out on the 21st of October with Into Books, and we'll talk about your relationship with them a bit later, I think. But first of all, what? how do you describe the book, you know, when someone like me asks about it? Oh, it's, a, it's a shaggy dog tail, really. <laughs> that, that, that's how it feels to me. It feels like um, a bit of a... The, the kind of story you might hear down the pub, but it's the, the, the background behind it, um, it, it. It's been formulating for a number of years in my head and I've been kicking it around for a number of years. And it's probably only in the last year or two that I've started getting to grips with it and um, putting it together the way that I'd hoped it would be. Um, but yeah, Shaggy Dog Story is probably the... the the best way to describe it. That's that's an interesting way of describing it. And I know I do know what you mean, but um, a very sophisticated shaggy dog story, I would have to say. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> so without giving anything away, can you take us through roughly who is the girl, then the crow, then the writer, and then the fighter? Right, the girl is a character called May Morgenstern. And May was the... Um, she comes into the story in the mid eighties and she's a, a, a girl who's in her early twenties, her chance she thinks maybe is past and she's quite content to coast uh, in life. Um, she's, I wouldn't say a slacker, maybe a bit of a proto slacker, yeah. uh, but um, she comes into possession of a, a, a book that was handed to her by a customer of the diner she worked in. And this customer's bequest basically starts the whole story uh, of the, the crow. I don't want to give too much away about oh, it. I know, crow, I know. Because the crow is, you know, the, the nemesis of the piece. The writer is Henry Miller, uh, the legendary as I described him recently, the Indiana Jones of sex. <laughs> that, that, that's how I'm trying to portray him in this story. He's yeah, described in the book some... as the, sorry, he's describing the book as the king of smut, which I thought was... Yeah, he is. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Ducrasse, I think it was called. Uh, yeah, he was... I think a lot of people, their, their thoughts on Henry Miller are, are clouded by his reputation and... I always found him quite an interesting character and a lot of my inspiration for Henry Miller came from the movie Henry and June yeah, and yeah. Fred Ward's portrayal of Henry Miller and I found him quite quite a muscular, very quite dissimilar to the real Henry Miller but a very interesting take on it and from that I started learning more about him. Um, so I've, I've taken some liberties with Henry Miller's life and his career and his writing, as some would say. And uh, I've turned him into a bit of a Sam Spade for the book, basically. Um, 
And the fighter is uh, Sonny Liston, who is another person I felt was quite misunderstood. Mm. Uh, one of America's, you know, in the early 60s, he was a world heavyweight boxing champion, but quite a misunderstood uh, person. There's very little known about Sonny Liston's real life. Nobody knows, for instance, when he was born. He didn't know when he was born. Yeah. And the the truth around his death is clouded and mystery and intrigue. So I've decided to put some flesh on those rather hefty bones, I feel, with Sonny's life. And uh, with the shaggy dog story part of it comes in with the what if, you know, a bit speculative here. What if... Henry Miller met Sonny Liston. What could have happened? And that came around, that came about because of an article I read about very unlikely friendships. And um, I'd already started writing a piece about Henry Miller, uh, a short story uh, based on letters he'd written to an actress slash showgirl called Brenda Venus uh, towards the latter part of his life called Dear Dear Brenda. And uh, he was quite candid in those letters. So the, the idea about, you know, the, la the latter years of Henry Miller's life and the idea about uh, Sonny Liston uh, from an article Stuart Cosgrove wrote in Bella Caledonia in 2015. And he wrote about Sonny Liston coming to Scotland and um, how welcome he was made to feel. and had he had that welcome in his life more than his path may have taken a, a different direction. But uh, I just two different ideas I was kicking about. And I, I read an article about uh, unusual friendships. And, uh, and in the article, it was the friendship between Samuel Beckett and Andre the Giant. So they were actually, they were friends, bizarrely. Uh -huh. You know, this stone-faced Irish legendary playwright uh, waiting for God, oh, but he was, the, the, the father of Andre the Giant was a farm labourer who worked on Beckett's property, and Beckett used to drive Andre to school in the morning, and they talked about cricket. So it was a very unusual, unlikely friendship, and that's what triggered putting Henry Miller and Sonny Liston together. That's fascinating. Because for those who don't know, Andre the Giant went on to be a wrestler. And a famous film actor in things like The Princess Bride. That's exactly it, yeah. That, what a fantastic story that is. So there's a lot there that we can kind of get stuck into, I think, without giving away spoilers, because sure. the opening kind of chapter is when Miller and Liston are in the same room. Uh, Liston's in the ring and, 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 and Miller's ringside. Was that how you started the book? Did you have that idea as your first scene? Uh, I think I'm, when I write, I, I'm, I'm not a trained literary, uh, literature student, so I, writing has, it's been quite odd for me. I've, I've not thought about it. I think about it more cinematic, right. how I would write this if I was watching it. So I write it the way I would think I would watch it. So it needs... A dramatic opening it needs something that, that sort of makes you you think so I started off by plotting it once I decided to put these two uh, very disparate stories together I decided to plot it starting with Liston's second fight with Ali and that would have been 
just across the Androscoggin River from where the bulk of the story takes place. So that's that's really where I started and to try and introduce gingerly introduce both mate of the, the writer and the fighter to the, the audience. Could you get that key sentence at the beginning that is it safe? Which for anyone yeah. who's ever watched the Marathon Man gave me chills thinking back to that was the case. But you know that becomes a, a that just absolutely sets the scene in terms of you just have to read on, you have to know what the yeah. hell's going on and what this is all about. And is it, sorry no, that, that that's that kind of Maltese Falcon esque kind of thing. You know, the, the Dashiell Hammett thing is very influential for me. It's uh, and I, I want I want the reader to think: Is this a MacGuffin? Is this real? Is this like the Maltese Falcon? Is this as important to us as it is to the writer or the the characters? Or is the story really about the friendships or the, the relationships? So uh, I've dangled a wee MacGuffin out there, possibly. And to go back to Henry Miller, I mean, I was someone who read Henry Miller probably because he was controversial and had this yeah. reputation and also, you know, this um, relationship with a name in and all of that. I kind of moved from reading the beat writers when I was in my teens to kind of Henry Miller's kind of seemed the next step because it was you know slightly illicit and there's some fantastic scenes uh, in libraries where people are almost they've got hidden copies of things you know around the back the special yeah. it's a fantastic kind of way well, well, he was banned for years he was banned mm. for years in his, his, his own country he was he was seen as i, I see him as you know uh, he was the uh, precursor to the the beat writers he he was uh, people at blaze senders and um, Henry Miller were like kicking the doors down, so Kerouac could follow through, in my opinion. Um, yeah. But I, I just found him a, such an interesting character, and his writing changed considerably from those early days in Paris to his latter days, his more reflective days, uh, when he was living in uh, Northern California. Because that's exactly the kind of path I took. You had Kerouac and other beat writers, and you went, oh, how were they influenced? What came before them? Yeah. And it yeah. seemed to be these were the American writers, or he was particularly the American writer that, would you say, allowed them to um, experiment in terms of style, but certainly in terms of, uh, in terms of substance. Just a thought here. Why did you decide that this was the novel you wanted to write? <laughs> Uh, it sort of just forced its way to the front of my head. I'd been, I've been writing for, the writing had taken over from the music in my life. I'd been involved in music since I was a teenager, uh, playing with bands and recording albums and stuff. And uh, the writing just seemed to get longer and the, you know, it seemed an ex more of an extension. I was, I was writing things and songs that were lasting maybe five, six minutes that I felt I need to expand on that. So the writing became more of a, a a part of my life, and I kept. I, I was writing for my band. I was I was writing on our websites and uh, doing little blogs and uh, just absolute nonsense, fictional stuff, just basically to tickle them and yeah. tickle myself. Uh, and then it, it just grew from there. And I'd, I'd I've written a 
couple of screenplays and I've written a, a very extended piece about the history of, of my band and how disastrous we were trying to break into the music industry. So that was at the forefront. And then this one just sort of just overtook it in the final lap. And uh, it was a lot more serious and a lot more uh, the way my mind was going. I, I recently, when I started uh, taking the story seriously, I got back into fiction. I'd stopped reading fiction for years. Uh, and I was reading mainly fact-based books, but I get right back into, you know, especially the genre, you know, genre-bending fiction, you know, like uh, people like David Peace and, you know, people who are just uh, experimenting with rhythm, you know, it felt maybe that was a, a good um, stepping off point from music into writing was the rhythms of things like Red or Dead yeah. uh, but David Peace just blew me away and that got me back into fiction again and then I just I've, I've been reading voraciously ever since and that's forced me into writing and then you've got you know guys like Jenny Fagan mm -hmm. and uh, David Keenan who have just absolutely destroyed me over the last couple of years uh, what they've been working on and it's forced me to to really go for it I'm getting I'm not in the first flush of youth so I'm like I'm very aware that time is a factor here so I'm just I'm, I'm not hanging about I'm just going for it and um, in, in a way Henry Miller was the same he was he became Henry Miller as, as a middle-aged man you know he was in Paris in his mid to late 40s. And that's when he started becoming the writer he was meant to be. So maybe there's some influence there. Because it's interesting that it is a love letter to America. That's how it certainly reads to me. Yeah. And, you know, it's full of um, references. Um, some of them quite niche. I was thinking it references Gates of Steel, Medivo, yeah. Andy Van Warmer, who haven't thought about it in very, <laughs> very a decade. And also the AMC Pacer car, which, you know, which was very American kind of cheap yeah, yeah. car. So it feels that like you really enjoyed that part of the writing, you know, maybe get stuck yeah. in America. Well, America's a big influence on me. You, you mentioned uh, your, your very kind notes to me when you were uh, supporting the novel uh, before we were published there. Uh, you mentioned that America was a big influence on many Scots, but myself in particular, I, a lot of the art and the creativity that I, I love and admire comes from, you know, jazz, blues, soul, you know, and a lot of that comes from America. Uh, a lot of the great writers, the writers that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm getting into now, you know, people at Ira Levin and, you know, Jonathan Lethem and people like that. and. Uh, they're, they're American, you know, very strongly American, you know, in their, in their themes. Um, so yeah, America's been a big influence on me, and it was it was lovely to uh, New York, for instance, in particular is a, a place I love. You know, it's, it's probably if you could say go and spend a week in one part of the world, drop me in Manhattan, and I'll be in my element. I'll love it a bit, uh, and I, I feel absolutely charged when I'm in New York City. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a big influence on me. As is Paris, I love Paris too. So uh, those places 
definitely drove this process. Because I was thinking it's also kind of homage to this idea for me of the great American novel, which is a bit of a mythical beast. You know, people talk yeah. about what was the great American novel. So, I mean, aside from the people you've mentioned, Anne Miller, who were the other influences that you were uh, that you took on board? Well, people uh, mentioned Dashiell Hammett early on. Yeah. Uh, they were, that's a big influence on me, his style of writing. Uh, I tried to get into Hemingway and I couldn't really get into the vibe of Hemingway. I like the idea of Hemingway, but not necessarily the prose because it's a bit too, it's, it's bone dry for me. I like a wee bit more. I wouldn't go as far as, uh, what's his name, John Kennedy too. You know, that that far, I would go somewhere in between. People at pension would, would be, you know, we inherit vice. Things like that were, were really like pushing where I was where I was going with that. Um, those are the ones that were influencing me most. A lot of my, my own influences come from, as I said earlier on, cinematic uh, themes and cinematic um, writers, theatre writers like Neil Simon. So my, my I was saying to David, I was talking to David Ross about this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, my my prose, you know, I, I'm aiming for people like Pynchon and, and but I'm not reaching it, but that's what I'm aiming for. Pynchon, Hammett, Elmore Leonard, that's what I'm going for. But when it comes to my dialogue, I'm very much William Goldman, uh, Nora Ephron and Neil Simon. Those are the ones that are driving my dialogue. So, it's, And because I've, I've never been trained, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. I'm not sure whether that this is, I honestly don't know. It's the new frontier for me. Yeah. What I would say is having spoken to many different writers, there's almost as many different ways of writing as there is yeah. writers, you know. Some are incredibly planned, some just start and see where it goes. It's as, you know. There is a fair bit of planning. There's a, there's a lot of research done on, uh, particularly the places, mm -hmm. and some to do with the people as well, but pr primarily on this book, I, I did a lot of research on, you know, I know Paris quite well, I don't know New York quite well, but I don't know Maine, and I don't know Corfu. So I was, I had to do a wee bit of research on Auburn, Maine, and a bit on Corfu, and I've, I've tried to throw it together and hope it's stuck, and it seems, to, from the early, early responses to it, it seems to have stuck quite well. I was going to ask you about your research, because there's a scene where I just realised that this is the book for me, and it's the discussion about Tweed, and tailoring that they have, you know, and you know, that's made in that shop in Edinburgh and all that. I'm just absolutely loving this stuff. But I wondered how much research you did, not just for that, but for the book as a whole. Yeah, th that tweed scene, uh, Miller's father was a tailor. So Miller grew up uh, around tailor, around material and stuff. So he already had a background in that, but he was also a great bluffer. So he, he could, he could bullshit his way through things. And I've just, you know, pushed that a little bit there. So that's that in that particular scene, that's what it was. But I did a bit of research on uh, the types of tweeds and the types of, um, I, I made a couple of names up though. So uh, I just, I bluffed it myself. But that's the great thing. That there's no way, you know, unless people are really into Googling every single name of oh, That possibly, that couldn't possibly happen. I know there'll be a lot of that kind of stuff where, 
and the timelines, it's very important for me to get the timeline yeah. right because there's only a certain couple of times in their lives that they could have possibly, Miller and Liston could have possibly met and it couldn't have been much later than 1956 or 57 because Liston's career was already taken off. Miller was available. There's a very short window, basically, sometime in the middle of 1953 when uh, Liston was basically uh, busted out of jail. He was doing a five-year stretch, I believe, and he was let out after a year because certain mob figures realised he was a moneymaker as a fighter, get him out of jail. So there's a wee spell there, sometime in the middle of 1953, and I tried to work it that it would be round about the time that Django Reinhardt passed away, and they're hunting for gypsy guitar in Paris, the sounds of a city in mourning, and uh, I, I try to make that work. And read it, when I read it uh, for the first time, and you had the scenes, it starts with Miller in Paris, as you say, and it becomes this spy thriller. And I just did not expect yeah. that. I mean, no. really, as you were saying, um, a, it's, it is muscular. I mean, it's almost a slap, cigarettes and scotch, you know, they've got that yeah. kind of, it's hard-nosed yeah. thriller stuff. And where did the inspiration for that come from? Again, it's it's, it's the, the Hammer influence. It's just the Sam Spade, Nelmore Leonard stuff. It's that's a big influence. It was more of a, an exercise. Could I possibly make this work? Could I turn a bookish Brooklynite Henry Miller into someone who could feasibly, you know, escape the clutches of, you know, a bunch of muscular nerd do wells? And I, I think I, I managed to do it. I, I think I was able to 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 do it. Um, but again, in my mind, I've still got Fred Ward, you know, from the movie. Yeah. And, and in that respect, he's more like Indiana Jones. I, I keep going back to the, he's like Indiana Jones. He, he wears the same hats and wears the same gear, but he doesn't get involved in fighting. If you notice in the book, there's only one instance of Henry Miller resorting to violence in the whole book. He doesn't get involved in any of the violent acts. Violence happens around him. Big violence happens around him. <laughs> a a lot, lot happens around him, but <laughs> he doesn't actually get involved personally in the violence. It's so interesting talking to you and you, you talk about the kind of cinematic influence because I'm now rethinking the book as we talk and you've got that kind of almost Humphrey Bogart or uh, Jimmy Cagney or that kind of you know tough guy there um, involved not necessarily Miller himself but those kind of characters that are suddenly yeah. um, a, s surrounding them but then you've got this other section as you said that's in the mid 80s that is Nora Ephron almost yeah. you know uh, letters and discovery and and relationships and, and all of that. And is that how you started to look at the two different sides of things? Yeah, I was trying to uh, bring them together in the middle. You know, the, the older Miller got, the more sentimental he got, and uh, uh, the more reflective he became, uh, looking back at his life and the mistakes that he made, uh, and the people he left behind. Whereas the, the character of Mae Morgenstern and the people that she was involved with, they are, they were already at this, you know, just coasting stage, but they were dragged into 
situations not of their making and it forced them to work out who they were, where they were going and how they would deal with any issues that were thrown up. And I, I threw a lot May's way uh, and I found her as a heroine of the piece to be quite inspirational. She's based on a couple of different people, right. um, real life people. Um, and it's those are people based on three people in particular, but those three women are people I admire greatly because of their fortitude and their, their ability to turn uh, hopeless situations into something positive. So on her journey to the to where we get to at the end uh, was quite probably the most satisfying part of writing the book. Yeah. No, I can understand that. Um the, the the Miller sections that we've been talking about are thrills and spills, but the kind of emotional heart, I think, are, are May's sections, I think, for me. Yeah. And it does seem that this manuscript that she's bequeathed comes along at just the right time for her. Yeah, she's a girl who's just going through the motions, uh, likes her baseball, likes cheers, you know, listens to music. She's in a couple of you know, unsatisfactory relationship. She's looking for something and Henry Miller and Anais Neen have opened the doors to, you know, another world in literal and figurative senses. Um, and other characters that I won't mention at the moment yeah. are very influential in May's development as well. So, uh, yeah, I found it really satisfying to write those characters and bring those characters in. I mean, readings at the heart of the book, there's, a, there's even a mention of Muriel Spark, which made me uh, smile at the end. But uh, Muriel Spark's a big influence on me. It's, she's one of my favourite writers. If you're talking fearless, Muriel yeah. Spark's right up there. She is, you know, if you look at things like Driver's Seat, mm. Driver's Seat's just, it's one of those books that y you get from time to time that, um, has you literally on the edge of your seat you're like thinking where is this going it couldn't possibly go where it's going and she takes you all the way there yeah. it's something I, I, again i was talking to david ross recently about this something that he did in his own book uh, there's only one danny garvey he took the story the last 30 pages of that story he just keeps taking you somewhere and you're like oh no I, i'm not sure he's going to go there and he does go there and that for me it's thrilling as, as a reader, it's thrilling. And if you can do it as a writer, that's incredible. Yeah. I so think you're right. pick for me. Uh, David Ross is right and does do that. He, he is fearless and he will, where yeah. other people might decide to take a left turn or to twist things, he'll yeah. follow it through to the end. Oh, I was I was blown away by the ending of Danny Garvey. It was uh, a remarkable final couple of chapters there. Really hats off to the man. And uh, The Driver's Seat's one of my favourite books of all yeah. time. It's just astonishing. If anyone hasn't read it, it's incredible. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. But it does seem to me, I think you've maybe answered this, but there's a theme underlying the novel, which is that, that books can change lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I'll give you an example. I was a, a lazy scholar at school. I was, I was not motivated. I was lazy. I wasn't particularly academic. Uh, I was pretty smart, but not focused. 
and most of my English teachers, um, they either wanted to be uh, your friends, they wanted to be chummy with you, or they were, you know, it was decades of repressed anger they wanted to, you know, <laughs> dish out to, you know, the, the youth of Pollock. Uh, uh, so for, for me, meeting a teacher, Mr. Hagen was my fifth year English teacher, and he spotted, was like, right, I know what you're thinking. You need something. And he gave me, Evelyn was the loved one. Mm -hmm. right? And he was like, right, you're going to read this and you're, we're going to talk about it. So we read the loved one, blew me away, man, absolutely. The absurdity, you know, but was everything about it was just, it, it made me laugh and made me think, I was like, this is not what I was expecting from a book. And he, he totally changed my view on literature in about a month. Mm -hmm. And he put me on to people like Muriel Spark. <clears throat> and he put me on to Ira Levin, Rosemary's Baby. Because yeah. you, knew, you, knew, you knew the movie, but read the book. The book's very different. See what you get for the book. And wow, satire, fantastic. I love it. It's right up my street. So Mr. Hagen really... Just a couple of wee tunes on the dial and I was gone. So yeah, the uh, books, a certain book at the right time, change your world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's talk about your book because it, it, the actual physical book, when I say that, because it is a lovely thing. I have to say, I'm holding it up again. It's a really, there's few books that you get, you hold in your hand and you just go, oh yeah, this, this is meant to be. Now you've been working with Into Books and Into Creative. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Because I think they've done yeah. an incredible job, I have to say. I, Stephen, uh, Stephen Cameron from Into has been uh, a force of nature, really. He's, he's, he's a phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal fellow. Yeah. Uh, really, really happy to have met him. We've been interacting uh, online for years, and then when I moved back up to Scotland, uh, I was in London for nearly 30 years. When I came back to Scotland, uh, I hooked up with him a couple of times and we had a lot in common. Uh, so he was, he hosted uh, the radio show that I did on uh, Cumbernauld FM. I do this weekly radio show called Lost in Music and he hosts it for me part of Into. And I've been talking to him about, we go for walks and stuff like that and he's published a couple of books uh, under into and I wasn't really thinking about you know pitching it to him but uh, I was chatting to him and his, his Mrs. Jan and uh, I just they were asking what's the book about you know I've been talking about it for a wee while I, I gave them a wee breakdown of what it was about and Jan seemed quite excited by it but Stephen was going well I don't really read fiction very often and I'm a quite a slow reader and but send me a manuscript anyway I'll have a wee look at it and you know I can maybe point you in the direction of a publisher who may be interested in it. And at that stage, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, getting a publisher. I was like, let's get it done first. Let's get it written as best I can, get it out there. So he said it was a really slow reader, you know, don't expect much. I sent him a manuscript and uh, later that night, he sent me a picture and it was page 77. And he went, 
we need to talk. So uh, I gave him a shout and he said, this is this is incredible because I've not, I've not been able to put it down. It's uh, it's such an exciting book. We need to go and we need to go for a, a long walk and have a long talk about, you know, I want into to publish this. So wow, okay. So it, it's not the biggest imprint in the on the planet. It's but I know that the people I into have have got my back and they're they're really passionate about the story and passionate about getting the book out there and they've been fantastic with me. They've been exemplary. And I think that's exactly what you want. You want that's to, exactly, uh, that absolutely. Kind of, aye, that kind of backing and knowing. And as I say, they've done an incredible job with it. Oh, it looks fantastic. It looks, everything about it, you know, it, it looks and feels like I would expect something that they would do. Yeah. It, they're very, very professional and, and, their dealings, everything about it. It's my first experience of being published and my first experience of working with a publisher. Yeah. And it's been fantastic. I've been, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of them. And the, in terms of the process, was there, a, was there a lot of back and forth? Did you have a lot still to write? Was there too many words, as is often the case? Yeah, yeah. There was there was a lot of that. <laughs> I, was like, I, I edited it down from... I think it was 119,000 words. I edited it down to 120,000 words. <laughs> so, uh, it was it was one of those, um, I, I needed to stop myself. I just needed to go, that's enough. Stop writing, man. I could keep going and I could keep, you know, digging wee holes and stuff, but I, I thought, no, that's enough. But I did, uh, uh, a few writers I did speak to, um, were very, very helpful. Again, back to David Ross. David Ross was very helpful. Uh, other writers like Tom Gillespie, uh, who wrote the no uh, strange book, uh, Jacob Boyce, which was a fantastic book. Uh, they were very helpful and gave us a lot of really good uh, advice. Uh, David Cameron as well, uh, who wrote Prendergast Fall. Um, they gave me a lot of good advice and I trimmed away as much fat as I possibly could uh, to try and keep the story alive yeah. um, without leaving it down to the bare bones. So cutting as much fat off as I possibly could. I did take a good few thousand words off. Mm -hmm. And I can understand uh, why Stephen couldn't put it down, because I couldn't put it down either. It's that exactly that kind of book that you really just want to know. You want to know, because it is, it is almost two stories that run concurrently, and you want to yeah. know what happens next in both of them. So that kind of drives things on to the end, I think. Thanks, man. That's good. Uh, yeah. So is, have you got something next? Or I mean, you say you've been writing for a while. Is there plans or is it too yeah, early? Yeah, I've got, I've got too many ideas in my head. Uh, really, my head's full of mims <laughs> uh, and full of wee stories. My next one, I've... I'm probably going to finish off this story. Uh, it's more well, that sort of uh, comedy drama uh, of the story of my band. Um, it's just we were shambolic or shambolic attempts to break into the the music industry. Uh, the story has been told many times, and it, but it's all true, mm. and it's it's. I, I found it funny when I was writing it and I write it really before I, I lose my mind and forget it all. So I, I'd like that one finished, but the next uh, 
fictional piece I've been scoping out and I've been uh, doing my homework on. And if you ever see me walking about the West End of Glasgow, that's what I'm doing. I've, it's a sort of, go back to Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, it's, it's a sort of a West End based um, horror, creepy horror sets, round about the streets, uh, up top of observatory roads, you know, where, uh, where Alistair Gray's place used to be, just round that, those kind of, those kind of streets. Uh, about a cult and uh, an innocent being uh, taken into this cult and uh, the repercussions it has for him and the people that were involved. So that's what I'm I'm plotting out at the moment. Uh, it, it, I'm planning it as a novella, but I know how I write. I'll probably end up having 180,000 words. It'll be Donna Tart levels, you know. <laughs> So that's, that's, that's probably next. That sounds fascinating. I'm sure those things don't go in the West End of Glasgow. Oh, totally not. Absolutely not. It's all my it's all in my mind. <laughs> well, George, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I've really enjoyed oh, thank it. You, Alistair. Thank you. And do go out and check out The Girl, the Crew, the Writer and the Fighter, because it's an exceptional book. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Mm -hmm.